Welcome to the Flex Success Podcast, where we teach you how to be less shit. Covering all things science relating to nutrition, training, recovery, and more. Who knows, we might even sprinkle in a dick joke or two. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody, to the Flex Success Podcast. It's myself, Dean, joined by Lizzie, as always. Hello, And uh, today we're joined by Brandon DeCruz. Did I get that right? You did. Absolutely. You nailed it, my friend. Pretty simple oh, last name. No, one, really no one's stuffed that up before, surely. Honestly, they have. I've had a couple podcasts. They'll call me Cruz, D Cruz, but you, you guys got it, so I'm, I'm impressed. It could, people could say Deck Cruz. That's true. It is specific. Yeah, Duck Cruz. Duck Cruz. <laughs> now, would you <laughs> like to give an intro to our audience for those who haven't heard of you, who you are, what you do, and why you do it? All right, absolutely. So, I've spent the last 13 years working in the fitness industry in some capacity. So whether that be in personal training or doing supplement sales or also as an online coach. So for the past 12 years, I've been working uh, full-time in the supplement industry. I've done research and development. I've done sales. I've done product formulation. But for the past eight years, I've also been an online coach working with everyone from gen pop and lifestyle clients to competitive bodybuilders and IFBB pros. And essentially how I got into this industry was early in my, you know, early in my teens, I um, was a competitive athlete and <clears throat> I ended up getting into a state of relative energy deficiency uh, in sport, which a lot of people highlight, but you only hear about it in women. And so I was an early teen and I ended up uh, developing an eating disorder. So I come from a, a much different background than most. I was a competitive athlete, but I was in weight restricted sports. So I did karate competitively, martial arts, and then I also did distance running. And essentially, I had these coaches around me, and this we're going to get back to this later on within the conversation, but I had coaches that heavily influenced me in my early teens and made the concept of weight restriction very prevalent in my life at an early, early, early age. So I was counting calories like this is way before the days of my fitness pal. Like I was writing things down in the log and, you know, using these little calorie trackers and I was you know, looking at nutrition facts labels, and I was very anal retensive about this stuff, and it ended up spiraling into uh, an eating disorder, which led me into the relative energy deficiency state, where I was lacking key micronutrients. I was massively underweight. You know, I was <clears throat> about a hundred pounds at fourteen years old, and and I'm a tall guy. I'm six two, so at that point, I wasn't that tall, but I was still massively underweight for my size. And then I was suffering from multiple side effects, like multiple. Um, muscular skeletal issues, chronic fatigue, and then tanked hormone levels as a teen. So essentially how I got into fitness was I went to a physical therapist and there I was introduced to the concept of weight training. And with that, they paired nutrition as a way to fuel my body rather than looking at nutrition as something I needed to avoid in order to deplete my body and to make sure that I was at a certain weight capacity. So I'm just this type of person that I get kind of obsessive with things. So once I got introduced to the topics of training nutrition, I was not only hooked physically, but intellectually and just literally read everything I could. So that was like in the days of the forums, if you guys remember, like there was no, you know, really good information. It was here and there. And luckily I did stumble upon some evidence-based practitioners early on, Aaron Aragons, uh, Lyle McDonald, guys like that, Lee Norton, very early on in his career. So I did have some good guidance off the front, but you know, in terms of coaching, when I first got into the coaching industry, the space was completely different. And I'm sure you guys have been in the game a long time. You guys can, can probably relate to this. Uh, there was way less coaches in the space, less credible resources, especially online providing information. And social media had yet to play a large role in this field whatsoever. So 
literally at this point, when I started coaching, it was 2012. So I believe that was the year Instagram started. So there was no InstaFit coaches and there was no information online. It was literally your bro in the gym or an IFBB pro that used to coach people. And it was very different than the space that it is now where you have educated practitioners that have experience, research, and, and they also have their their anecdotal experience with, within the trenches. So when I first got into you know, online coaching, you only did it really if you were a successful personal trainer. So everyone that I knew at that time, and I'm sure you guys can relate to this, you were good at working with people one-on-one. And you had a ton of experience in training and nutrition. And, but over the years, what I've seen is that the field has become very saturated and has become watered down you know, with people who got into coaching not because they had a passion for it or knowledge or skills or this one-on-one experience and that they wanted to help others, but that they thought it was like this easy career. Like I often see people glamorize online coaching where you sit back on a beach, you have like this nice location and you work a couple hours a day. And I really think that that's what has led this industry in the wrong direction. So essentially, you know, I've been in this before that, but I'm still, you know, you know, this is my career in this day and age. And pretty much my mission is to be able to help my clients achieve their goals of, you know, improving their physiques through building muscle, burning body fat, but in a healthy, sustainable manner where they not only get results that they desire, but they are able to maintain them because we see that the, the real issue isn't getting results. So for instance, let's look at fat loss. It's not that people can't lose fat. It's that this recidivism rate is so high so that we see that within the first year of completing a diet between 60 and 70% of people regain that weight. Within two years, it's 85 percentage. And then within three years of losing weight, it's a 95 percentile will have regained all the weight. And out of those 95 percent, two thirds or more would have regained either the same amount of weight that they had or more. So it's really this issue where it's the maintenance, it's the sustainability, it's the methods that people are going about, especially in terms of like the health ramifications and the extremes that they're going to, that I kind of have spent my career trying to, you know, kind of go against um, because I've competed myself and I've, I've been fucked up by coaches. You know, I've, I've went through the bad experiences and I've done over a hundred, you know, professional fitness shoots. I've done over 15 shows. And I've pushed my body to the extremes. And, you know, early on, we weren't being taught by coaches, you know, that we were to do things in moderation. It was an extremist type of sport, you know, whether it be gaining mass where we were pushing excessive amounts of food to build tissue but very rarely at that time was anyone talking about the drawbacks that come along with that, such as like the insulin resistance, the metabolic syndrome, high triglycerides, all these other things. And at the other you know, end of the physique continuum, like during fat loss or contest prep phases, you know, we were taught to push as hard as possible to get shredded, but very few people t- you know, would speak about the diet-induced metabolic adaptations, you know, including both the physiological and the psychological ramifications that come along with this process. So really my whole intention behind coaching and really my mission is I I do something what I call a health-centric based model of coaching where I consider the health of the individual both physiologically and psychologically in the process of getting them results because anyone can get you results in 10 to 12 weeks. And, And most coaches, you'll see these phenomenal before and afters. You'll see what the person started at and what the person ended at, but you never see an after-after photo. You never see what happened to that person. And oftentimes, we know behind the scenes, because I'm sure you get the same that I do, a lot of clients that are hormonally downregulated, psychologically impacted, these people don't look like that for more than a few days. You know, they go through terrible rebounds. They go through psychological issues. They have, you know, emotional issues with food. And that causes a state in which 
you know, we're only seeing these before and afters that them lifestyle and gen pop clients want to chase because they see competitors and what they look like, but they're not getting it through their heads that this isn't a sustainable process. If you take the same type of approach that these extreme athletes take. So I kind of, my whole mission in this is, you know, I work with competitors, but I work with also the same amount of lifestyle clients. I really try to get across that a healthy body is a responsive body. And if we use that as the fundamental principle behind coaching and behind our approach to physique enhancement, it'll enhance not only your life, you know, your physique, but your life. Mm. As you said, it is a very saturated market now with so many coaches, countless, and more joining day by day as everyone's moving online. And this is one of the reasons why we wanted to get you on because you do have the sustainable approach because you are holistic because you do care about the client. You don't just care about getting people lean to promote your before and afters. Um, so thank you for being one of the awesome people in the industry instead of after after a few bucks. And yeah. it's true, the glamorization of sitting on the beach with a laptop. Working. I mean, that's what we do. <laughs> it is not true. <laughs> when I became a personal trainer, I think I also had a glamorized idea of what it meant to be a personal trainer and also a rude shock. Well, yeah, it's, it's all, I think the 100%. Beat. Now, the PT world has shifted into, like you said, most of the original online coaches were probably successful person or face-to-face coaches that have just transferred into online. But like you look at the initial PT onslaught of people that come out of a very small course, they, they, they sold the, um, the message of you can make a lot of money training people. <clears throat> so they go after the money. Most PTs don't last longer than a year. They find another group. And then the online space is like you can live a lifestyle. But then, you know, they're still terrible coaches. So then they only last a year and then they end up somewhere else. The you know? thing that frustrates me in the coaching space is being good at what you do only has a weak relationship with being paid. Whereas being good at marketing has a strong relationship yeah. with being paid. So there's lots of shiny 100%. turds out there and <laughs> clients that are getting totally fucked up by their coaches. And you even mentioned you had an experience with that. I have too. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and, I think that good coaches, some of them are doing a really good job of getting their message out there. Some of them, not so much. And I think you're a good coach that is also good at getting your message out there. So certainly not a shiny turd. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I appreciate that. No, um, you know what I I have seen is that I'm very in line with what you guys are saying. A lot of times there are some quality coaches that had potential. However, they got out of the space because they were chasing monetary incentives. And that's why, like I, I mentioned earlier, I've kept a career in the supplement industry and it's at the point where I don't need to. However, I like that security and I also have a passion for supplements, but I know this is a conversation that both you and I, Dean, have had where you kept a a full-time position within the supplementation industry while you built up your coaching clientele. And that's a good security blanket because at one point, you know, honestly, I I go back eight, nine years, we didn't know if this was going to be a career. And I see why a lot of people got into it that had this, you know, this misconception of what it was, but we're at the point where this is a legitimate career and the unfortunate part. And I try not to get distracted by what other people are doing only if it affects me. And I do have a lot of clientele that come to me in these really bad situations where they have been messed up by people in the past. Um, but the thing is that they give a bad you know, rep for our industry. And my biggest thing is one day I think we will be policed and we will have you know, overseeing bodies. I mean, at least in the United States, I know. And so that'll have ramifications and that'll be a good thing for those that are practicing in the right manner. However, to have to take such an extremist approach and to have people that have literally done this just for the pursuit of, of monetary, you know, incentives and, and money and whether it be exposure via social media, I just, 
I really believe in that you should chase your passion. And if you're doing something, especially something as impactful as being a health coach, being a health practitioner, your first duty as a coach is to do no harm. And I don't see that a lot in this space. I see a lot of people that when they initially got into fitness, whether it be from like a career aspect or even just a physique enhancement aspect, they usually see it from the lens of like improving their health and fitness. Yet they quickly forget the health and just go right to maximizing either the fitness or their career. And that's because focusing on health isn't sexy. Let's be honest. It, you know, the, the before and afters are where it's sexy. So, so many people within this industry neglect that, but it's a foundation to everything. So when it comes to coaching, in my you know, opinion, I believe that you know, we should be putting high priority principles first. So when it comes to nutrition, you know, I sell supplements. I've formulated dozens of supplements on the market, but I'll tell you, when it comes to nutrition, I take a food first approach. And the same thing with bodybuilding, fitness, body comp, coaching in general, when, you know, I look at coaching, I take a health, you know, first approach, you know, so it's, it's all about prioritizing things and realizing that you have a duty. If you're doing this as a career, it should be not only that you have a passion, we all want to get paid. Let's be honest. We, we have to sustain ourselves. But at the same time, if you're doing something that impacts someone's health, you need to put, you know, that as a priority to do no harm and to ensure that you're doing the best to your ability to ensure that your clients are going to be leaving you better than they came to you. Mm, absolutely. I'm actually for this reason for a more regulated industry. Um, because like if we think of lawyers or doctors or careers that have been around forever, they have tight regulations because we can see that a lawyer or a doctor impacts people's lives in such dramatic ways. And, and like you said, a coach does that as well. Even you were so heavily impacted by your coaches when you were younger and maybe there was more regulation that impact might've been more positive instead of driving you down mm. some eating disorders. Yeah, I think the absolutely. I think like it controls the security a little bit. Like it provides the security that the person's at least has started from the foundation up, mm. as opposed to coming in at the top of the funnel and just focusing on how to get leads and how to make money and how to get before and afters. Because like you said, that's not that difficult. Like if you're really shit at it, you just take people's calories away, make them do more work, they get leads. You know, like that's kind of easy. <laughs> you know, but like you know, like from my university degree, the first thing that we do in the screening process was exactly that. Like figure out what the problems are so that you could do no harm. Like that's the first fundamental thing you're taught when you're going through this kind of stuff. Whereas I don't think that's necessarily the case for people that are just using it as a, a means to an end to make money. Yeah. Yeah. We can think of the do no harm as informed consent. So you're saying to a client, okay, you want to get on stage and get really lean just so you know, you're probably going to be tired all the time. You won't be able to get hard. You will have a preoccupation with mental preoccupation with food, like all of these things. Do you consent? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. I'm fine with being flaccid for a month. <laughs> let's do it a month well, i reckon it might be longer the pool guys yeah i don't i don't know guys i've had some uh preps that have been much longer than that unfortunately my girlfriend can attest <laughs> poor thing now you mentioned uh previously that you have a health focus so when people are wanting to achieve a goal you're not just you know getting them to the goal and forgetting about all the other markers of health can you talk to us about, uh, I don't know, maybe like what aspects or, or markers of health you're looking at and how you go about juggling that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, first, I'm going to take a step back and just, you know, speak about why I put health first, because a lot of times people hear that and they're like, you know, and even clients health, sometimes I'll have a consultation with them and they're like, you know, I've heard some of your podcasts where I, I see your social media posts and like, I want results. 
and don't get me wrong, we all want results. So sometimes they get kind of scared when I, I put health as a priority. But the thing is that I've seen in both myself and now mind you, I've taken both approaches. I've taken the extremist bodybuilding approaches where I've been coached by the bro bodybuilder that has made me tilapia and greens every meal, you know, and do excessive amounts of cardio and, and do a lot of things that I'm sure that many that are listening to this podcast can uh, attest to. And then I've seen the impacts that those have had physiologically on my blood work. I've seen the impacts that it's had psychologically and also just feeling like straight shit. You know, I, I mean, and that's a part of the process. Believe me, I've competed many times. That is a part of the process to a certain extent, but it shouldn't be the entire process. You shouldn't be 12 weeks out and feeling like you're on death's door. So I've seen when I've taken this health-based approach that when, you know, both in myself and in my clients, when we improve their health markers, it allows us to push their training harder. They recover better. They sleep better. They adapt better to the stimuli we're giving their bodies. They're more responsive to the nutrients in terms of, you know, that, that we're feeding them in terms of their insulin sensitivity, their nutrient partition, their digestion and assimilation. They feel better. They function much better. And, you know, they, they essentially everything within the context of their life, both in and out of the gym, because that's something that so many people overlook is the outside of the gym, not just the hour you're training, but the 23 other hours of the day, they're so much more effective and efficient than if they weren't as healthy and when they've utilized other approaches. So the thing is that I have a lot of clients and the reason I came to this health centric approach was I have a lot of clients who come to me in a suboptimal place of health uh, to begin with. And I'm sure you guys can say the same. Um, and it's, it's due to having an imbalanced lifestyle. And this applies to both competitors and lifestyle clients alike. So this isn't just for your competitors, nor is it just for your gen pop clients. But let's think about the average person. I, I know, um, you know, Dean and I have spoken about this, but they're usually overstressed yet under recovered and massively underslept. Uh, you know, what I generally see is that they're, they're usually either overfed yet undernourished in terms of eating. So they're eating the wrong things and lacking adequate micronutrients in their diet, yet they're in excess of calories. So they're in a surplus, but they're not getting the right nutrients. Or we have the clients at the exact end, you know, opposite end of the spectrum where they're nutrient deficient from how underfueled and undernourished they are due to improper dieting practices like your crash dieting and your chronic yo-yo dieting. They're doing excessive amounts of volume and things like circuit training, hit, you know, workouts, boot camps, CrossFit classes, and, or they're on the opposite side of that. And they're extremely sedentary and they're working like they're an office worker and they're giving you the excuse that, Hey, I train one hour a day, four days a week, you know, I'm active, but you know, their activity scores, you know, their physical activity levels are, are shit. And they, they lack adequate energy throughout the day. They suffer from brain fog. They have a poor relationship with food. They have body image issues. And they, they feel as though they can't recover and they're not getting the, the results that they're looking for. They, they come to you and they say, you know, and I have this all the time where they'll tell me, listen, I'm putting in a lot of effort. You know, I feel like I'm not getting anything out of this. And, you know, in terms of what they've been doing previously, and many of them have actually received coaching, but they've been guided into these extreme and unsustainable methods that led them feeling like they were not only, you know, over-restricted and exhausted, but experiencing negative health outcomes, you know, whether that be from excessive fat post, you know, fat gain post diet, to psychological issues, to internal issues, like high blood pressure and high blood lipids. So this is why I really started to nail down this health centric based approach and started looking at more biomarkers, because I wanted to get this gauge. And in terms of where are someone coming to me, where are they at? Because a lot of times we assume that, you know, a lot of coaches will assume that a client's a blank slate and that's not the case. Every single thing that you do, a lot of times people will look at metabolism. They say that's a sum of all the chemical processes in the body, or that is the amount of food that you burn. No, your metabolism is a, is a compilation of everything you've done in your life. It's, 
your the, from the time you were in your mother's womb to the medications that you've taken to you know the imbalances that you had to the stressors to yes your your food choices your activity levels things of that sort but it's it's so much all more all encompassing than that so when i really look at when i look to help, you know optimize people's health i'm looking at you know certain biomarkers and making sure that i'm able to optimize those since the get go because if they're in a bad state to begin with they're not going to respond optimally and they're going to be in the same state you know 12 weeks from now that they were when they came to me. Because if you're not, you know, your body's not healthy, it's not gonna be responsive. So the three things that I look at, you know, or the, the main things that I look at is I'm looking at both subjective, but I also really like objective data. It's great to get object, uh, subjective feedback, like how a client feels, how their energy levels are, how their sleep quality is, their recovery capacity, their digestion, stuff like that. But oftentimes we know that a lot of these people are coming to you in this sympathetically driven state and they overlook a lot of things. So you'll ask them, how's their sleep? And they'll say, it's fine. And, and then you have to get a gauge. And then I'm doing like a perceived recovery score. And literally, little by little, I'm what I call peeling back the layers of the onion. And initially I did that, but I wasn't getting as much detail as I wanted. I would get on phone calls with clients. And in the beginning, they're very, um, a lot of them are very hesitant to give up information. They feel like, you know, team no sleep. And, and you know, I got to train every day. And, and all these things, team no days off. And so that's where I go to objective markers because that is something that I will have them take a picture if I feel like they're being, you know, you know, uh, inaccurate with their tracking. And I'm able to see things that say, all right, these are either warning signs or we're heading in the right direction. So the three main biomarkers that I track are flaccid blood glucose, resting heart rate, and blood pressure. And the reason for those, you know, I do do a lot of blood work and stuff, but off the bat, they're really, first of all, they're inexpensive. And, and they're not invasive. You know what I mean? It's something you could do in a span of a few minutes. You know, you have an activity tracker that's going to track your resting heart rate. You have a glucometer, which you can easily do within 30 seconds and get a fasted blood glucose level. And you have a blood pressure monitor. I mean, if you can't work those three things, you shouldn't be in fitness. You know what I mean? If you could do all these other things, you could use MyFitnessPal and you could track, you know, your macronutrients and you could track your scale weight and you could use an app for HRV. You can do these things to ensure that you're in the right state of health. So really, I look at those three things for um, you know, a vast you know, amount of reasons. You know, first and foremost, fasted blood glucose, I use that as a marker for both insulin sensitivity and then nutrient partitioning, um, which allows me to gauge how a client is responding to their nutrition plan and macronutrient setup. This is especially important for me when we're in an off-season, we're pushing calories, because the number one reason for insulin resistance is excessive calorie intake. And a lot of people will point out, they'll say, oh, it's carbohydrate intake. No, it's excessive calorie intake. You can induce insulin resistance. We've seen it in studies with excess saturated fat intake. And then I also use this. A lot of times people will use a biomarker and they'll say, it only gives you one reading. You know, it came up, I was at 98. That just means that I'm, I don't have good insulin sensitivity. No, it also shows other things. So I also use this marker to track disruptions in sleep quality and increase in stress as these are two of the top reasons as to why we see deviations in fasted blood glucose. So I'm using tracking you know, sheets and things of that sort to see the deviations. I want to track trends. So if I see that a client didn't mark that his sleep was off just because you know, he was in a rush when he did his, his check-in, but I noticed that there's a, a trending upwards in his fasted blood glucose, I'll ask, listen, are you really stressed or are you, you underslept? Because those are two main components as to why someone would have high or higher fasted blood glucose. And then when it comes to fasted blood glucose, I generally try to keep clients between 70 
and 84 milligrams per deciliter. And I'm speaking in U.S. units here. Uh, I know you guys are in a, a different uh, – what are you guys in over there? We use N-moles per deciliter, so like our average is, say, somewhere between four and six fasted. Okay, so the ideal range here would be, you know, on blood work, it's 65 to 99. That's a wide spectrum. And the reason I say that, that's the normal range. But remember, I'm sure it's the same thing over there, is you don't want to be normal. Normal is just a cumulative average of what a sick population has designated or has been designated as a labeling as normal. So, for instance, um, let's look at it like this. For every milligram above an 84 facet blood glucose level, your risk of becoming a diabetic in the next decade increases by 6%. So, for instance, if you had, if I had a client come to me and they had a 95 milligram per deciliter blood sugar, so they're 10 points above the, the optimal range, there is a 60% increase in the next decade of becoming a diabetic. However, if they went to their doctor, they would say they were normal because they're under 99. So that's the biggest thing. You know, now, one of the biggest issues with high facet blood glucose is that it often coincides with that person developing insulin resistance, which would also include having high postprandial blood glucose readings. So it's not just the facet. A lot of times when you have someone that's chronically elevated in the morning, you'll also see the same thing with their postprandial blood glucose readings, unless that high facet blood glucose was due to chronic stress. So they're having like cortisol dumps in the morning, or they have dawn phenomenon, or they had, you know, a disrupted sleep pattern. And the biggest issue with that, a lot of people don't realize they think about, you know, hyperinsulinemia and, and insulin resistance, but it's not just the fact that you're getting desensitized to insulin. It's also the fact that one of the most inflammatory events we can incur in our body is being in a constant state of postprandial hypoglycemia. So it's, it's that high elevated insulin levels that are causing oxidative stress. So it's, it's more stress upon the body that's wearing down on other systems besides just your pancreas and beta cells. So I, I notice that a lot of times in our industry, people do this a reductionist approach where they'll isolate variables. They'll say, oh, well, fasted blood glucose, that's, that's just your pancreas. You don't want to become a diabetic, so keep that in range. But it's also correlating to cardiovascular disease. It's correlating to high blood pressure and renal function. So it's all these multifaceted things that they cross each other. And so this is why I'm very passionate about looking at trends and addressing issues proactively rather than reactively. Because in the US, to be honest with you, unless you're over a 99 milligram per deciliter blood sugar reading twice, you're not going to be labeled as pre-diabetic and your, your GP is not even going to say anything. And we know that diabetes cuts down on the average life expectancy by 10 to 13 years. So it's something that if you're already elevated beyond that 84 milligrams per deciliter, we want to do something about that, you know? Yeah, it's very similar here in regards to practitioner intervention. Like, oh yeah, I'll have, I'll have clients that will come back. I first met them and their, you know, blood pressure is 135 or whatever. And it's like, yeah, but that's been, that's been like that now for like the last six months. My doctor says it's stable. I'm like, it's stable at that. Stable hypertension is the problem. Like, <laughs> now, let, now let me ask you, because they just changed the range in the, in the US. What is your range for healthy? We're still 120 over 80 here. Okay, so you know, just, just to give you a reference point, because we are becoming a sicker and sicker population in the U.S., recently, as of this past year, 2020, the American standard value was raised to 130 over 80. And, but this is literally just due to our population being sick, which raised the mean average. However, if we look just in the early 2000s, the average, the healthy average was 115 over 80. So it's like these things have slowly trended up and they're saying, hey, this is healthy. But the thing is that your cardiovascular risk doubles with each increase of 20 over 10 millimole. Mm. So for instance, we went from 115 being the healthy to now 130. Well, if you're at 135, 
you have doubled your cardiovascular risk. So that's a huge thing that we got we to gotta keep you know, aware of. And that's why I believe in taking this proactive approach and, and maybe like more of what people would label a holistic or functional approach. Because unfortunately, I, I don't know how it is with you guys, the average GP spends seven to 11 minutes in the US with a client or with a, you know, a patient. And that's where we have to come in. And that's why I always say, we're not only you know, online physique coaches, we're not only body composition coaches, we're health coaches, we're health practitioners. And that's where the do no harm thing comes into play. If, if a GP isn't taking care of them and they're not you know, um, evaluating and they're not tracking these markers, someone has to step in. Because we can't just, you know, a lot of times, and that's, that's where it comes back to my bodybuilding days, it's like we, we put our heads in the sand and we hide from things and we want to avoid them. So if you are a bodybuilder, if you're a gen pop client, and you're kind of unaware, or you're not educated to this, and you're not experienced, you might just avoid these things, and you might never know. I can't tell you how many times I go to seminars, or I consult, I, I coach a lot of other coaches, and the first thing I ask them on their intake form is their blood pressure, and they say, NA, you know, they're, they're not sure. You know, and I'm like, so you coach hundreds of people, but you don't know your own blood pressure. You know, that's an issue. Do you know, do you know Luke Lehman? Do you, have you heard of him? I've heard. I have heard of him, but I'm not familiar with him like, like that. He's, uh, he does a lot of seminars coaching coaches, right, uh, from the ground up, sort of foundational physiology and all this kind of stuff. And he had a comment at one stage that he actually made his class of 20 to 30 PTs take their blood pressure, and I think there was less than five that were within a <laughs> reference range. And he was like... But was Luke standing over him? He was like, you motherfuckers need to sort your shit <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing. There's, there's a commonality there, and it's like the pot calling the kettle black. It's like we're supposed to be – think about it. As coaches, we should be the walking representation of what our clients should be looking to, to do within their lives. We should be uh, – and I'm not saying I'm a beacon of health. I've had my health complications. I've went through these things personally. I've had an eating disorder. I've had high triglycerides. I've had hypertension. But the reason that I know so much about these things is because I had to work on them myself. I had to learn. I had to research and then I had to apply these practices to my own self and dig into the literature and then I was able to help other people. But the thing is, if you're, you're going on and saying, hey, I'm a coach, I help all these people, but you don't know what your fucking blood pressure is, you're a hypocrite. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's unfortunate that you had to go through eating disorders and, and some medical issues, but that's why you're such a good coach now because you know how like impactful that was on your life and how painful it was. And that's what sparks a fire in me because I've had my fair share of issues as well. And I don't want people to be in that place. Like that sucks. I want people to see that there's like a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, and, and with our coaching, we have such a better feedback loop than GPs who have pretty terrible incentives because they get paid per patient. So if they're seeing 50 patients in a day, that's, you know, six to 11 minutes, did you say? Per appointment? Yeah, seven to, in, in the US, it's seven to 11 minutes is the average patient uh, appointment. It wouldn't be too dissimilar, especially considering like we have healthcare here. Like yeah. where I think you, you basically book out 15 minute blocks with a, with a doctor. Yeah, with a GP. So it's safe. If a GP was to spend 30 minutes or 45 minutes or whatever, like that, they're slashing their income mm. <laughs> by, by a significant amount. And if a patient comes to them and says, you know, I have this issue, they're like, cool, here's a pill, here's this, I don't know, whatever referral. If that patient doesn't actually follow up with the medication or the referral or they just don't like the idea, they're going to go to the next doctor or they're just going to sit at home with the same problem. And the doctor doesn't have that feedback loop or not as tightly wound as we do as coaches, mm -hmm. maybe daily or, or weekly contact through check-ins with our clients. So we, we can tease out 
what works, what doesn't work or what worked for them or what didn't work for them, what issues came up in them actually putting this solution into action, what might be a better solution. Mm. So I think that there's so much room for coaches to help where doctors just don't or can't. Yeah, I mean, you have the, you have the opportunity to even build a relationship where there's trust, you know. Yeah. Um, and and, another- and it's, a, it's a contact point as well. It's the frequency of that contact. They show that clinicians and professionals, whether it be dietitians, nutritionists, and general practitioners have the lowest success rate in terms of helping with obesity and morbidity. So it's, it's because, and we have to look at, we, we have to extrapolate. It's not due to lack of education. It's due to that lack of contact point. And it's also due to lack of the time investment. Because think about it. I'm sure that you spend a, a large amount of time per clientele. I know I cap my own clients in terms of how large of a roster I take on so that I can have those frequency of contacts. And even with my lease, the clients that I speak to lease, it's at least once a week. Whereas who do you know that goes to their GP once a week? No one. Oh. A crazy person? Yeah. Somebody else. Oh, somebody. Uh, hypochondriac. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We also cap the amount of clients that we take on for that exact reason so that we don't have to spread ourselves too thin. Yeah. I think like, you know, that comes obviously from a good place too, because I honestly don't think I would enjoy it. Like part of, part of the coaching incentive to me is having an impact and also ensuring like, cause I specifically just focus on contest prep. So like I'm taking people as far away from the healthiest points as possible, but still in the healthiest manner possible. Mm. Like with informed consent. Yeah. With informed <laughs> consent, like to have those people leave and then just absolutely obliterate themselves afterwards is just a failure on my behalf. So do you mean weight regain and weight regain the psychological impacts of prep, you know, like yeah. that, that sort of typical like hamster wheel that you see a lot of contest prep athletes in where they're just constantly in a staff cycle, a binge cycle, a yeah. I'm no good unless I have six pack ab cycle. Like it's, it's pretty scary. Which is why we encourage comp prep clients to stay on board after their prep is over for at least a few weeks. Yeah, and also why we, again, we cap so that we have contact time so that, that person can actually have some support through that process because it's difficult. Yeah, 100%. I actually, I do a very similar approach, but I also do the same thing in terms of, I do a primer phase with any competitor that I take on. I will not take on someone for prep just for prep. And that's just based on my own experience, having worked with so many competitors over the years. A lot of times you'll have someone that just wants to jump into the process. And listen, if I don't know your body, I can't guarantee you being ready in 12 or 16 weeks. Or, you know, sometimes people have this logical fallacy where they think they're going to be ready in eight weeks. And you know that they have so much more to peel off. And it's like, I want to do a primer phase because in within my primer phase, I'm looking at all these health metrics. I'm looking at your resting heart rate. I'm looking at your blood pressure. I'm looking at your blood glucose. We're improving upon all of those. I'm improving upon your conditioning. I'm improving upon all these, these values as well as getting to know you as a client. I'm getting to know you physiologically, so internally, but I'm also getting to know you psychologically. I'm learning about your, your habits, your behaviors. Also, your predispositions. So if you have binge restrict tendencies, if you have a poor relationship with food, if you have some uh, misconceptions about food or you have, you know, you were guided in maybe uh, not the best manner previously, you look at things through this black and white context. You know, it's good and bad foods, on diet foods or off diet foods. I need to know that stuff before we jump into this process because, Dean, like you said, bodybuilding isn't inherently healthy, but you could do it in a healthier manner. I'll never say to someone, when we get four weeks out, all bets are off, man. You know, health is going to take a little bit of a backslide. I'm going to make sure that you are in a safe position, but there are some, you know, I, I prep IFBB pros that have competed at the Olympia level. So, you know, in men's physique at least, and, you know, to bring them to that level takes an air of extremism because everyone else 
You know, you can't show up with a knife to a gunfight. However, I'm checking their values and I'm making sure immediately after we're going right into a health phase and it isn't this, let's chase an anabolic rebound and keep pushing drugs and doing things that physiologically your body does not want to do. There, there is no anabolic rebound except for fat regain. So it's like, it's about being the informed consent. It's about doing things in the most optimal way possible and being able to guide your clients both physically in terms of the instructions that you give them, but also from the psychological aspect, being able to be there and say, listen, I understand. And, and Lizzie, like you hit on previously, it's unfortunate I had to go through these things. You know, people will say that, but I actually, looking back retrospectively, you know, hindsight's always 2020. I'm so glad that I had bad experiences. I'm so glad that I worked with shitty coaches. I'm so glad that I, I had an eating disorder because I can relate to so many people. And I'm not trying to come off as an eating disorder um, you know, specialist, that is not my field. I would refer actually to a guy out in your area, Jake Lenard, uh, who's, who's uh, incredible. Uh, so I would refer out to other people in that capacity. And when I have people that come to me with eating disorders, I refer them out and I do have people that I, I consult with in that regard. However, it's good that just from a relatability standpoint, just like Dean, you've been on stage, you push yourself to the, the extreme of your body. I can always tell my, my clients, listen, I've been in the trenches. I understand what you're going through. So, so I've been there. I've pushed myself to this capacity and I would never ask someone to do something that I wasn't willing to do. You know what I mean? And I think that's a big thing about being a coach because as it's gotten more oversaturated, like we were speaking about previously, I see a lot of people, it's not that you have to be a great bodybuilder. It's not that you have to have a great physique, but you have to have walked the walk in some type of um, aspect. You have to be able to live the lifestyle and at least, you know, um, not only preach about things, but follow through with them. And that's why I'm so big on these health things. You know, sometimes I'll send my private blood work to clients and say, hey, listen, you know, these are where my markers were at at this point, And this is what I was able to improve them to. I've been there. Don't think, like I said, I'm not a, I was not a beacon of health. I've had these complications. However, through intelligent approaches, changing my manners and realizing that there's a bigger, you know, bodybuilding and fitness is a portion of my life. It's, it's not my entire life. And realizing that there was a healthier approach, not just, you know, let's more, more, more. I was able to undo some of the damage that I did previously or that I did under other coaches and under other guidance. And now I've been able to help other people in the process. And I think that's a big thing. We should always be evolving as coaches and taking those lessons that we learned and passing them on to others. Wow. Mm. This might be a good point for a less shit tip, Dean, or what do you think? Potentially. I was just going to ask one question. Go on. Do you, did you, have you, have you decided, I don't know if it was consciously or subconsciously to show people your blood work from where you were to where you are to perhaps create a little bit more buy-in on the why that they need to start to take, uh, you know, uh, I suppose, check of these particular metrics and this biofeedback because I can foresee a lot of people thinking like, oh, this is a lot to do, you know, like, oh, do I, do I really need to? Like, I otherwise feel pretty healthy. Can't like I just say. eat more vegetables? Mm. <laughs> so it's been for one of two reasons. So yes, it has been to create buy-in. We know that, you know, it isn't about it's about adherence and consistency within a program. So sometimes you do need to create buy-in. So sharing that has been able to allow clients to say, all right, he was able to do it with himself. Or sometimes I have relationships with certain clients where they'll allow me to show their blood work to others. So yes, on, in certain components and with certain clientele, it is about buy-in, especially with my competitors. I find them to be the most reluctant. And also just how this industry, the direction it's went in, in terms of how the league has developed, um, how the organizations have become, you know, it's an evolution. Bodybuilding is an evolution, even on the amateur level. It's gotten more and more competitive. 
they're more willing to kind of put their, you know, bury their heads in the sand and kind of ignore like the side effects or what they feel. And they'll just chuck them up. Like I'm supposed to feel this way. I'm supposed to have no libido. I'm supposed to, you know, see my estrogen crash. I'm supposed to have no HDL, like all these things. And they're kind of making excuses for it. So I show them that for the buy-in, but really I, a lot of times I'll show like my lifestyle clients, some of my blood work to let them know, like, listen, this is going to have a tremendous impact in your life first and foremost. And it's not always this long extrapolated time period. Now, mind you, if someone has extreme health concerns, I've had people come with, to me with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes. I've worked with type 1 diabetes. I've worked with autoimmune disorders. But generally, if they're not in, that, in a pathological state, meaning a disease state, if they come to me and they're a little over fat, they're, they're suffering from fatigue, they're underslept and they're you know, they have uh, micronutrient deficiencies. This is something within a four to six week primer phase where I could get their conditioning better. I can improve upon their sleep. I can improve upon their habits. I can modify their behaviors. I can improve their blood pressure. I can decrease their fasted blood sugar. I can get their resting heart rate into a better value where their autonomic nervous system is more balanced. Because if we see someone and they're constantly, you know, with this high elevated heart rate, especially in the morning, you know that they're sympathetically driven. So we, it's not just about what we're doing in the gym and with your nutrition. It's about that 24-hour period and how we're managing your lifestyle. So a lot of times I'm telling them, it's, it's not only to create buy-in to the program, what they need to do, but it's also to show them the importance of it's not just the X's. I always tell my clients, it's coaching isn't about the X's and O's of macros and and nutrition or the sets and reps of training. It's about the entire construction of your lifestyle. Because a lot of times when someone comes to you for coaching, they're only looking for body composition change. They only care about the training and nutrition. That's only a certain, you know, that's only a few hours out of our day. And if you're someone that's chronically stressed and you're underslept and you're under recovered and you're constantly in this stress-induced state where you're in fight or flight. That is what's causing more issues. That is the bottleneck on your progress as well as on your health. So that's where I have to sit them down and say, listen, you know, let's look at what the progress you've made in the, in the past four to six weeks in this phase. Well, you know, I told you to do this, this, and that. And on this component, you know, you nailed the nutrition, you nailed the training. And these blood markers, these biomarkers, these objective feedback improve. However, you're still not in an optimal range. And why is that? You're still not sleeping enough. You're still overstressed. You're still you know, dealing with, um, you know, fatigue, you're still, you know, overusing stimulants. Now we have to look at the context of everything outside. It's not just about what you do in the gym and in the kitchen. It's about what you do the rest of your day. And I, I utilize the same things towards activity. Like I, I utilize steps with a lot of my clients and often I'll have someone give me the, the feedback response. Well, I'm active. I, I train five days a week really hard. And then I tell them, I say, listen, hundred percent, we have you on a training program, you're progressing volume, you train intensely. But how many hours per day are you in the gym? Honestly, I want you to time it. I want you to send me a picture of the time you step in the gym, of your watch, and the time you leave. And they'll send me like, you know, it's always like an Apple watch or it's, it's like your Fitbit. And they'll show me all this calorie burn, which we know that's extrapolated and inaccurate. But I'll, I'll add up the, the time throughout the course of the week. And most of my clients aren't training more than six hours a week, you know, on average. And so I'll tell them, you know, it's 168 hours in a week. So for the rest of that, if you're training an hour and a half a day, five days per week, you know, for 22.5 hours, if you're sitting on your ass, you're sedentary. Oh. It, it doesn't matter what you did in the gym. And we know that we see that actually in studies where they've done what are called challenge tests, where they'll take someone and they'll put them at sedentary levels of activity. So their steps will be low and they'll have them sit between 
12 and 14 hours a day to mimic what the average American would do in terms of the context of their work, so their eight to 10 hour workday, as well as what they do at home when they're sitting and watching Netflix. And then at the end of a three to four day period, they'll have them do an hour all out aerobic test on a treadmill. And the next day they'll, they'll administer a challenge test and sometimes it's a mix, but generally it'll be like a high carbohydrate meal or a high uh, fat meal. And sometimes they'll mix them both and it's high uh, carb and high fat. And we see that when you're at lower levels of activity in terms of steps, you are going to be um, less likely to be able to clear that. You're going to have lower um, insulin sensitivity. You're going to have a higher, uh, a higher um, essentially difficulty clearing the lipids from your blood. And they've actually done tests where they'll utilize different step counts. So 2,500 steps, 5,000 steps, and 8,500 steps. And the level at which those side effects were not seen were at 8,500 steps per day. And this isn't with doing cardio. It was with general activity throughout the day. So it's, we have to realize it's not just about what you do in the gym, just like when it's improving health markers. It's not just about what you're doing with your training and your nutrition. It's also your stress management throughout the day. It's taking this sustainable, all-encompassing approach. This is exactly why I moved away from being a personal trainer to being a coach. Because as a personal trainer, you're working with someone for their one-hour session. And they can't figure out, they're working so hard in their PT session, why is it they're not getting these mm -hmm. results? But as a coach, we can look at all of these things and we know that our body is this interconnected web of everything that we do and eat and see and think. And that's what I love about coaching. Mm. Um, holistic, can I use the word holistic without people picturing like a salt lamp and palm <laughs> reading? <laughs> it is funny how that is transferred into that. All of a sudden, if it's like holistic, it. it has to be yoga and, <laughs> and it has to be crunchy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Absolutely. Now, the tagline of our podcast is how to be less shit. So either as like a summary or maybe one take home point from today, what would you like people, what would you like to see people do in order to be less shit? All right, I would like people not only to prioritize their health, but also from a mental perspective, realize that more is not always more. In this industry, we, we had this misunderstanding, this misconception that more is always better, more training volume, more drugs, um, more cardio, more of a deficit. A lot of people, they're under this misconception that if a little worked, more will give them a better result. And that's not always the case. And what I really come back to with that is if I just kept, we know about allostatic loader, the total stress bucket that you can handle. If you're in a stressed state, if I was to give you more, like you're stressed at work, if I was to give you, and I, I tell this to clients often, if I was to give you more and more assignments, you know, despite the fact that you might make more money, do you think that would be worth it from your ability to manage that stress? And often they'll say, well, if I was overloaded and I was already backed up and I wasn't able to see my family and I, I'm already not sleeping, I, they feel overwhelmed. And I often say that's how your body is perceiving those added stimuli. So if you're someone that you're, you're overdoing it in terms of training volume and you're always pushing these different aspects, we have to realize that training nutrition is a stressor and your body perceives it as such. And although we could all look at training, I, believe me, I love training. I love dieting. However, a lot of people will look at that as their outlet, but in reality, it's a form of stress. So really my whole thing coming back to things is being willing to do less, but thinking about things like this, value consistency more than intensity, value quality more than quantity. It's, it's all about being selective in how you do things and maximizing and getting the most out of those things. So that would be my biggest, you know, be less shit tip. Stop doing fucking more 
and thinking it's giving you returns if you're not getting anything back. You know what I mean? You're utilizing more time, but you're getting less results per unit of time. Yeah. I love that. I love that so much. Sure. Get that and print it on a t-shirt for me. I know. I'll make right, everyone right. read it. <laughs> hey, you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, can you give me some advice? Just... <laughs> now, we have a couple of short questions for you. Um, first one being... Sorry. I got to tell you, just to interrupt, I'm nervous about these. I've heard the type of shit you guys ask. We do not do this in the States, so I'm, I'm going to preface this for anyone listening, but let's go. <laughs> Liz okay. decided to go off the cuff today too, so you can, normally, you can get anything. We're going to ask you a would you rather question, and normally we have a card game where we pick a card out of a hat, but one's being picked out of my brain today, mm. and it may be nasty. Let's do it. We'll see. I don't know. <laughs> um, no, but the first one is something worth sharing. Do you have like a... I don't know, a favorite habit or a book or a store or something that you'd like to share with our audience? Yeah, honestly, um, a book that I really, I'm big into habit, um, you know, habit formation, essentially swapping out habits, and I'm big into behavior modification. So one piece or one book that I always recommend, I've gifted it a lot, is Atomic Habits by James Clear. So I'm sure you guys have heard of that book. Love the it's book. phenomenal. Anyone, yeah, he's a guy in the States like, He's phenomenal. So that's one piece of advice. If someone out there has not read that and they're looking to change their life, even if it's you get one thing out of that book, I always tell people like that could be something that changes your life because your habits, you are the sum total of your habits. So anything that you want to change in your life for the positive will balance on your habits and the improvement upon them that you make. But also the things holding you back in your life are generally a reflection of the habits that are holding you back. So that's a big thing. And then the other thing that I would share just from a personal thing is bookend routines, having a morning routine and having a nightly routine. And now I have a pretty intricate one. I'm not going to go into detail because it's going to take the rest of the podcast, but just having something that you have as a goal when you wake up and something that you, you bookend the night and that you have this routine. And the reason I say this is that life is hectic. We all encounter stresses and unexpected things. I told you guys tonight, I wasn't even able to get on the computer because we had a car accident right, right by my house and I lost internet. You never know what's going to happen throughout the course of the day, but you can control how you start your day and how you end your day. And I think it, if you're able to nail those two processes, how you get up in the morning, I, I always encourage my clients to be proactive rather than reactive. Don't look at social media. Don't look at your phone. Do something. I have an educational podcast or an educational lecture that I already have queued on my on my laptop that I play as, as soon as I wake up, just so I can absorb some stuff. I spend the first two hours devoted to my own education and to my own development because I work two jobs and the rest of my day is going to be hectic. If I don't get it in then, I'm going to be thinking about it the whole day. So do something for yourself, pour into your cup in the, in the beginning of the day. And then before you go to bed, do something de-stressing, whether that's box breathing, whether that is a journaling, whether that's a brain dump, whether that's reading, it doesn't matter what it is. It could be yoga, it could be meditative. We could get really crunchy with this shit. It, do, it doesn't matter what it is, but do something for yourself at the beginning and the end of your day and bookend those routines so that those are your constants. Those are your anchors in life and throughout the course of your day. It doesn't matter what else happens throughout the day. You accomplish two big things within your day every single day. If you start your day and end your day in a specific fashion. So is it going to be some game changes if people aren't doing that already? Absolutely. No question. Yeah. And not to, uh, we can't forget that having a good bookend helps people get to sleep faster and have better quality of sleep, which affects so many things, cravings, energy management, concentration, mood, so many things. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. Would you rather 
<laughs> I'm just as excited for these. Not things. have developed <laughs> down there past the age of ten, so you're stuck with what if a bit. He was an early developer. <laughs> I don't know if our listeners have either have children or have seen naked children on the beach, I'm always so shocked at how the the ball to penis ratio is so off in yeah. children. Okay, so you stop developing at the age of ten, so like the ball to penis ratio is like it's all wrong and it's it's looking mm. a bit prepubescent or have a female's voice. Oh, Oof. so that is a rough one. However, I will say I was a late bloomer in life. <laughs> so I didn't hit puberty until about 20. So I am definitely going with the female voice because if you left me at that state at 10, think about it, a relative energy deficiency, I was underweight, yeah. nothing was developing. So we're <laughs> going with the female voice and I'll take that on the chin. All right. How female is this? Look, I think I have the most masculine of all female voices, so you can have mine. Oh, <laughs> perfect. Yeah. I think it would be difficult to be taken seriously as a man with a female voice, but yeah. at least you'd get laid more often than if you had a prepubescent dick. But would you, though? Maybe you'd never make it there. Oh, I don't know. Because, you, you know, you can, you'd be packing heat, but maybe nobody ever experiences it because they're like, he's, he's late. But my thing with that is that the confidence and the psychosomatic trauma that that would cause someone, think about it, if you're developing, think about it from the perspective, think about if your body, if your body stayed the same way that it looked at 10 years old, you wouldn't have confidence as a man. So I got to go with that one. Okay. Because if not, what you could just do is this, you have a very female voice, you'd be like, now I know I sound like this, but check out what I look like. (laughs) And, and guys, let's think about it. We've, we've seen females virilize themselves. So I could take some Winstrol and I'll be good. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. What would you choose? Uh, I'd go for the ladies' voice, yeah. Would you? Yeah. Okay. Although I, I pretty much, I think I nailed, when I say nailed puberty, I was pretty <laughs> much done by the age of 11. Wait. Like my feet, I was telling somebody the other day, my feet were a size 9 US in grade 7 when I was 12. And they're only a 10 and a half now. Bizarre. They told me I was going to have size 14 feet, but it was literally that I just, in grade six, I just went Poop, and then it just stopped. So Dean, hear this out. I'm the exact opposite of you. I had a size seven and a half or eight at 10 years old. I'm a 14 now. Yeah. Wow. So I have clown feet. That's what I just admitted. However, we yeah, see the discrepancy in development. Exactly. We see the discrepancy. So that's why I'm going with the, the latter option. Okay. And yet now he's got a very masculine voice. <laughs> yes. And not even testers helped me except for growing this beard. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I remember when we first met, I begged you to grow a beard and it was this patchy excuse of a beard. I had all of six whiskers on each side of my chin. Yeah. Thank God for test. Yeah. Now, if people wanted to listen to your stuff, read your stuff, maybe contact you for coaching or other services, that sounds bad, other services, uh, yeah. how can they find you? You guys can find me. The best place to find me is at Brandon DeCruz underscore on Instagram. Brandon DeCruz Fit is my website. And then I also do, uh, I just started doing a weekly podcast called the Every Calorie Counts Podcast. It's, it's more like educational stuff. We go deep dives into science and stuff. But if you guys are interested in some interesting topics where I really break down the science and some research behind it, would definitely suggest it. We'll give you guys the caveat and the warning in advance. I am not, we are not as funny or entertaining as Dean and Lizzie. So I want to make that clear, but it's something that you guys can check out for sure. How many episodes in are you? About 30. Oh, great. Okay. And one a week? Yeah, generally one a week. Yeah, yeah, cool. Awesome. I haven't, I haven't heard your podcast. Now you said we, so there's the co-host? 
Yes. So it's actually a, a podcast that another friend of mine that I've known for quite some time, he's a contest prep coach, uh, had started. And he had asked me to come on in, as a guest and he got a lot of good reviews. So they've kept me on. So it's not my podcast. I just appear on a weekly basis. I show up, I bring some information and, and we get it going. You like the Greg Knuckles of uh, the, the, um, the mass, not mass. Stronger by Science. Stronger by Science podcast. <laughs> the unofficial co-host. And that is an honor to have been given yes, that comparison. Yes, every week. Yeah. I'll take that all day. <laughs> I love it. Well, thanks so much uh, for sharing this hour with us and sharing some brain games with our audience. Your be less shit tip. Mm. Um, and we hope to keep in touch. Sounds good. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much for having me on. Pleasure, mate.